Welcome to the only show dedicated to a new way of delivering healthcare. This new model has no name, but let's go ahead and call it direct contracting or digital first care. The new way centers on opting out of the games bigs play with their rigged dice, their crooked game board, and their purchased referees. And if you're looking for a future where everyone wins, that's the doc, the consumer, the employer, and with assured amazing outcomes and measurably lower costs that are ranging up to 60%, you're in the right place. I'm Ron Barshop, your host. I'm glad you're here. Welcome to the new healthcare economy. Acute labor shortages are all in the headlines these days as thousands of cities and towns and states and school districts across the U.S. are facing the most acute labor shortage in a generation or two. Regional and local governments have an even tougher time than businesses because they can't compete with our private sector wages, nor can they offer remote work. They rarely can. And they faced a historically unprecedented wave of early retirements as the silver tsunami has decided to opt out early and younger opt-outs are happening too, thanks to COVID. So the biggest problem for private employers is the same, same. Chronically, about 800,000 people shy of the needs. Municipal school, state, county, labor shortages by comparison are exceeding about 780,000 slots today. Supply chain disruption might vie for the first place problem for employers, but most of them are saying they can't get enough help out there today. And this show can't help supply chain, but we can talk about labor shortages because there's an elegant and clean answer for most of these labor shortages. The smart solve in Silicon Valley is the early adopter because tech has chronic shortages pretty much all the time is drum roll please, direct contracting. You knew I was gonna say it. With all five fingers of the healthcare hand, primary care is the foundation, that's the thumb we'll call it, the specialties and surgery centers, the independent imaging and the labs, wholesale pharmacies, We've had a lot of those folks as guests on our show, all five of those. And then you got to add in a catastrophic stop loss as a wrapper to protect against the scary stuff like cancer, heart, and more like that mental health. And a great TPA to adjudicate claims and to steer call-in members to world-class solutions like today's guest we're excited about. Direct means skipping the bloated, wasteful middles who muck it up for the employer, the doctor, and the consumer. We all three have been hammered for decades by the bigs as they have been profiting very handsomely. And now we are the winners and not the losers anymore when we go direct. So offering essentially free healthcare, which means no premiums, deductibles, co-pays or co-insurance, nada, free, no tricks. A-tier candidates will turn up in droves for interview when free healthcare is the headline in your opening. It's the number one reason candidates give for accepting offers. And it's the top reason or two why they'll stick around too. Freedom from the tyranny of premiums, deductibles, and co-pays is called a raise. For singles, that's averaging four to 500 a month nationally at a minimum. For families, that's 1,400 to $2,000 per month at a minimum. So we're talking about six grand to 24 grand as a raise. The first true raise in decades not absorbed by the tapeworm of healthcare as Warren Buffett calls it. For almost 25 years, wages have been flat Thank you, healthcare. And that's called a personal recession, and its length is unprecedented in US history. Our previous guest, Dave Chase, elegantly calls this healthcare stole the American dream. 
Unfilled jobs will be filled by better candidates than ever before. I've lived it firsthand four years now since we offered it, and no one leaves either. The latest study on this is two-thirds of all employees would forego bonuses, paid time off, vacations if they had excellent employer-sponsored health care. And imagine if it were free. Well, that's a wake-up call for mayors and governors, but really for directors of all health care plans, CFOs with spend authority, treasurers, finance directors. Not only is offering direct contracted care smart, but city, state, schools, and counties can shave 20 to 60% off their overall spend by skipping these bloated, sleepy middles. So free healthcare means using that 20 to 60% to eliminate the employee contributions. You get it? Employers use these savings to pass it on to the team. We had a guest, Rosen Hotels, a previous guest uh, twice, with 6,500 employees who basically only have a $5 copay, so they have some skin in the game for their healthcare and their executive exercise. Rosen Hotels, a previous guest with 6,500 employees, have basically only a $5 copay, not only for their workouts, but for all of their healthcare needs. And now the 6,000-room Orlando Resort has zero debt. They've been doing this since the mid-90s. They also give free college to all their employees and to all the graduates of the two poorest school districts in Orlando. And the matriculation rate for these school districts used to be in the one to two to 3% range. Now college matriculation is on par with the richest school districts in Orlando, the 65 to 75% range. So healthcare is the second biggest line item after labor costs. So a serious savings that only helps these larger causes, but also goes right to the bottom line if you wanted to. Walmart has saved a billion dollars a year the last two years this way using direct contracts and steering teams to centers of excellence like today's guest company. At their thin margins, they'd have to open up about 1,400 stores to drive a billion to their bottom line. They used a quarter of that billion, 250 million, to offer free college assistance to their employees too, who qualify. So when Amazon is your worst nightmare, a billion from being smart in your spend is a huge lift. So 800,000 municipal, state, and school employees and retirees of New Jersey enjoy some of these direct contracted relationships. Chris Deacon, a guest on a few shows of ours ago, a couple of months ago, who led this effort, told us that they found a billion five in savings to finally fully fund their pension plan. No one has done that in decades in Jersey. And they also gave a month reprieve on all employees funding their healthcare spend. So not free healthcare, but at least one twelfth off. That's never happened before in New Jersey history, a premium vacation. The state of Montana was the first state, and now the health plan has a surplus in savings using direct contracting of about $120 million a year, which contributes more to their bottom line than all the other state categories of savings combined by far. And with easy, free, frictionless access to primary care, chronically sick people that work for you are finally properly attended to, which is about 85% of the healthcare costs they trapped in maybe five to 10 to 20% of your employees. So diabetes, heart, cancer, asthma, et cetera, these lifestyle diseases are early on reversible. Cracking that code, diabetes and lifestyle reversal are two companies, one of which has agreed to be on our show. You're gonna hear from Verta Health's chief medical officer in a future show, and they're the real deal, and that's called a tease. Okay, so what shrinks with frictionless access to primary care are way fewer ER visits, way fewer hospital stays and visits, dumb needless tests, which happen every 15 seconds for a lot of different reasons, and less medication usage and even better compliance or adherence when they do have to use the meds, and way less over-treatment. There are way too many surgeries on knees and backs and more 
much better handled without surgery, we learned from our previous guest, Catherine Raymond Jacobson. If you remember, she wrote the book Crooked. It's the defining book on crooked orthopedic racket. And her hundreds of citations alone are a book themselves. And her publisher said they can't put them in the book. They have to put them online. There's so, so over 400 citations. So in short, what shrinks by 20 to 60% in every category I just named with free primary care is volume-centric sick care. That fee-for-service model that we know the bigs are addicted to like crack is old and haggard, but it's not going anywhere because remember, they own 70% of all the urgent care centers as feeders to their heads and beds. And they also own 70% of all physician practices. So volume-driven profit-centric sick care, heads and beds is alive and well, and it ain't going away. Okay, so 800,000 openings in government, 800,000 private, unfilled, it's forcing change. Other states are waking up and starting this direct contracting journey include the Virginias and Kentucky. My beloved progressive Texas may even wake up and dabble soon, I'm told. And half a dozen other states are looking into it because they have to. Why aren't more doing it? Well, last month, wouldn't agree to be on the show, but one state plan director I spoke with said they couldn't direct contract even though the state would save an easy billion with a little bit of work, billions with an S. Why? The governor and lieutenant governor were in the pocket of bigs who, let's face it, write ginormous checks to politicians. And they're giant job creators, too, in most states, even if a lot of them are fluff administrative jobs. And until the last election cycle, 2020, big healthcare outspent combined the next four lobbying categories, which is defense, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and energy. Imagine that. Now, six school districts in Texas are dipping their toes in direct contracting, including the largest, Houston ISD. Just hired our recent guest, Dr. Juliet Breeds, and her urgent care centers, and they direct contract primary care. El Paso was the first in the game, uh, and there's four or five others that are now getting started. Florida and Colorado schools are all over this, slowly but surely, and one Colorado school district gave the first raise they've seen in decades to their teachers because they had extra money to spend. So we have a big school district in Florida. It'll be on the show soon. Again, another tease. So it's spreading. And now we, we know for a fact that 30 million Americans are direct contracting through their employers on my count, just from guests on this show. So it's got to be more. And by the way, United, Aetna, all the bigs are getting into virtual primary care as of last month. So 30 million is going to be a, a much more bigger number, but it's hard to estimate right now. There's no association. There's nobody counting this. So what to end city and state labor shortages, your own labor shortages at your company, start offering free health care. You can pay for it with a savings and it's close to a no-brainer. It shaves your number two cost center, the health spend, and with those savings, it shores up your number one labor. Today's guest I'm super excited about, he's literally the wizard behind the curtain on a lot of things we see in standard of care today. Robert Palmer is an MBA. He's also a CEO, a founder, and a data scientist. He is the CEO of Potential Metrics and of several other companies he's founded and sold. And he has over 20 years developing analytical models for healthcare payers and providers, life sciences, professional sports, financial services, private equity, and manufacturing. But he's best known for really developing these really cool models to define the individual clinical and economic outcomes for, say, cardiac surgery and cancer, number one and two killers in America, and also home healthcare. He developed outcomes models that are used by the largest medical technology companies you've heard of and top academic centers you've heard of. What does that mean, outcomes models? Well, 
before minimally invasive cardiac surgery blew up to become the standard of care, someone had to model the massive savings, massive outcome improvements based on evaluating, comparing massive data sets that are out there. And it's not just intuitive. That guy is today's guest, the wizard behind the curtain on that. No more Frankenstein scars by cracking open chest these days. So what heart has gone through in the last 30 years, I'm told cancer is about to go through with precision medicine in the next 30 years. Another example, Robert has worked with Medtronic to define the reduction of complications associated costs for using cerebral oximetry in cardiac surgery. That's how much oxygen goes to the brain. We don't want too much in a surgery. Um, another example, personalized cancer care. What works best for you personally? Chemo, surgery, radiation, diet, a mix of these, none of the above, one of the above. Everyone is going to respond differently based on a ton of personal factors. And this is the guy and the company that now laser beams to you and your doc the best approach based on massive data to eliminate guesswork and shotgun approaches. Throwing the kitchen sink at cancer is not a good idea. Don't worry about the cancer, they say. We all know the radiation and the chemo will get you first. Okay. Well, Robert Palmer's defining work has been published in Harvard Health Policy Review, Becker's Hospital Review, and he's received a ton of honors and awards, including from the American Cancer Society, Predictive Analytics World Conference, and South by Southwest in Austin. He taught at Washington University for seven years in the famous entrepreneurship program there. He's a member of YPO, Young Presidents Organization, and is currently the education chair for the Healthcare Network. And he's our only guest that's good enough to, as a teenager, be able to hit regularly within number one ranked Jimmy Connors. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Really nice introduction. Appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. Well, any you have any comments on what I said before we get started? Yeah, many of the topics I I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, one one of the the biggest challenges that I've seen in healthcare now reviewing literally millions of, of uh, patients' outcomes is the the elephant in the room. Many times that that isn't uh, discussed is the um, frequency of procedures. Uh, we talk about cost savings or making the current system run better, but in in reality, about thirty percent of of what what we do in healthcare isn't isn't helpful and therefore uh, harms the patient. So. Uh, if we would right-size the system according to what treatments provide the best outcomes, we could go a long way to solving a, a, a big problem we have in healthcare today. Well, hallelujah to that. So, Robert, your dad's story compelled you to start your present company. And to introduce that story, please tell us how you came to partner in St. Louis with the Washington University School of Medicine. Yep. So, um, I attended uh, WashU Business School there. And... Um, I was developing models for cardiac surgery, as you you, you referenced. We we um, modeled the outcomes of patients that were uh, treated with minimally invasive approach surgery versus uh, conventional, and looked at the reduction of of uh, infection, um, longer time in the OR, uh, more complexity on on the procedural side, but downstream patient benefits, and so. Over time, as you've indicated, that that's be become more of a standard of, of care, as, as I believe it should have been. And while we were building those models, I was uh, using cardiac surgery data sets, which include really granular information on patient comorbidity, the complexity of the procedure, outcomes of other patients. And during that time, my dad was diagnosed with uh, metastatic prostate cancer. And so quickly shifted personally to, okay, what outcomes information is available for 
for my father so that we can make a, a more informed treatment choice for him. And I assumed that in cancer, there'd be more data, that the, that the models would be more advanced, but shockingly, I, I, I found a very little information that was relevant to my father who at that time metastatic prostate cancer. So it, it really, um, based upon a personal need and then our personal need turned into the needs of millions of others that, that, are, that are diagnosed every year that are looking for an answer to um, a seemingly simple question, what are outcomes for individuals similar to me based upon different treatment choices? And that's really where we, we set our sights in, in providing the information because these treatment decisions are so complex. You have um, personal values in, and preferences enter into the discussion as well as clinical outcomes. And so um, just providing transparency so people that can make the best choice for them is really where we focus. It seems to me like there's unlimited variables with your dad, age, health, BMI, you know, diet, exercise, you know, true heart age, true liver age versus his actual. I mean, there's, how do you actually narrow it down to know, is he part of an avatar that fits, here's what we ought to do as a treatment protocol for him in cancer with, with this metastatic cancer? Yeah, and that's a great question, a great way to key up of exceedingly complex complex environment that, that we are in enter into. Um, so just looking at, at the, the factors that impact every patient with cancer. So age, the um, other diseases of their overall health, the stage of, of, of their disease. Um, those are critically important factors that, that can start and frame the conversation. And then, then you can also look at some additional factors that would be genetic factors, uh, um, mutations, the, the availability of targeted treatment. And so with all those factors combined, plus the personal preferences uh, uh, and values conversation, it, it's, um, I, I would argue, near impossible to create a mathematical model that would direct someone towards this is what you should do. But what, what you can do is solve part of the puzzle and say, here, here are some elements that are, that are important for you to know. And then some, some of these other components are, are really up to your um, personal judgment, personal values, as well as your um, understanding of the limitations of, of all the models that we have in place today. So for instance, in our, our models, if we quote a 50% survival rate for individuals similar to you, it's, it's, it's important information for you to have, but what we, what we can't target today is tell you, are you in the 50% of of survivors, you're in the 50% of patients that didn't survive. So, so um, what we can do is, is quantify the risk and at least put people in the right neighborhood with that, which is greatly needed today, but also being frank with people and, and, and describing the limitations of what we can provide today as well. Okay, so the standard of care now for, mm, I guess, stage three, not metastatic or stage two might be First, you surgery, try to excise the cancer, then you're going to radiate. Maybe you'll do that before. Then you'll throw chemo at it, and then you'll tell them to get on an exercise program if they have any energy left at the end of all that. I think what you learned from your dad's situation is that what he, his protocol that he went through as a standard of care was wrong for him. He would have had a much longer or somewhat longer survival rate had he followed the data that you have now. 
yeah, and, that, and, and we believe that to be true. And the, and the data um, that, that we have also indicates that for my father. So the, the treatment he received, um, radiation, hormone treatment, chemotherapy, each one of those had a, a, um, a, a negative impact on his, his functioning and, and as a derivative, his quality of life. And, and what we found with my father and what we didn't want to realize is that, that he was frail when, when he was diagnosed with cancer, even though he was 70 years old. You know, um, if you looked at him, he told you he was 50, you'd believe it. Um, he jogged five miles the morning of his diagnosis. So his, his physical activity was high. His physical conditioning was great. Um, didn't smoke, didn't drink, uh, uh, never had. And so it was really um, confounding to us that he even received this diagnosis. And, and our assumption is at the time was, well, more must be better. Um, whatever we can do to slow the progression of the disease down is going to give him the, 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 the best chance. What we didn't take into account was the effects of treatment. In his case, pulmonary embolism, a side effect of the chemotherapy, um, radiation caused scar tissue into urethra. He couldn't pass urine. He had to cath himself. Um, introduction of staph infection through cathing himself, uh, surgeries to, to, to remove infection, um, incontinence in and out of the hospital more than not. Uh, um, his, and after a year of, of uh, very low quality of life, uh, pneumonia and dead. And, and so uh, he started at about 200 pounds and, and towards the end of his life, he, he was down to about 140 pounds. It's, wow. So people are using your consulting, I guess we call it, to have a higher quality of life, maybe an extended quality of life. Um, you're not going to end the cancer, but you're certainly going to look at all the factors and, and give the best outcome for the least amount of stress on the body. C correct. And we're the trade on one of the big challenges. And, and we were in this group. Less than 5% of adult patients can accurately describe their prognosis. There have been multiple studies done, done around this. And it's not because the physicians don't share with them information around prognosis. Many times patients don't want to hear it, or they may hear um, during treatment that your, your, your tumor is responding to treatment. And immediately they think, well, I was terminal, but, but now my, my tumor is responding. Therefore, I'm, I'm now being treated for cure, which is a, a wrong assumption. And therefore, these patients many times will self-direct more care than, than they would otherwise if they knew that, that uh, what, what, what they were dealing with from a long-term perspective. So when you speak with patients and ask them the question, would you, um, would you like to spend time in the ICU? Of course, no, but large numbers of, of cancer patients end up spending um, time during the, the, the end of their life in, in, in the ICU because of side effects of treatment in large part. So understanding that they're there are benefits and, and there, there are trade-offs associated with each one of these decisions and, and just eyes wide open uh, go, because there is no math, as I indicated, that can solve for, for each one of these and direct people to what they should do. Rather, here's the best advice of your physician. Here's the best evidence that we have. Here's, here's the trial information. Here are the guidelines, which we, we believe are incredibly important, but the, but the additional element needs to be brought into play. What are outcomes for individuals similar to me so that you and your physician, your family members, your caregivers can, can sit down and solve this um, incredibly challenging decision 
and be at peace with it and have confidence in the decision you made. So basically 1% of all employees at a typical employer are going to get cancer. And I guess a lot of them are younger employees, so they might have blood cancers that are eminently treatable anyway and have a super high survivability rate. Are you still going to consult with those folks who are going to use the standard of care to basically with a 95% survival? I think every patient should should be aware um, and go in. Um, there is the tendency towards uh, everyone, patients, uh, to, to lean into, well, let's do more uh, for, for, for this than, than less. So if you look at the outcomes of, of patients that have early stage cancer, the adjuvant treatments many times don't provide much survival benefit, and yet they may they may have side effects and, and longer term uh, trade-offs that, that the patient may or not may or not be aware of. And so, for instance, a, a, a young woman diagnosed with uh, breast cancer would want to have deep conversations with their clinicians about if I choose this treatment, what what's the effect on my future ability to have children? What about downstream? Um, potential damage to my heart valve or secondary cancer. So all these are, are, are future derivatives of the, of the decision that, that they're making today that may temper their fear of the current state versus getting a, a, a treatment that would um, put, put them in, in the cure basket today versus um, in a recurrent basket tomorrow. Okay, so WashU is your, was your primary source of the data for your metrics and your outcomes. Have you gone to other treatment centers for cancer to get their data as well to partner with them? Yep, so we, so we always had multiple center data in our model. So it's important to have a, a large sample and also an understanding of how uh, patients are treated in, in different areas of the country. So um, working with large academic centers is of great value. You know, we do see uh, benefits for patients treated in those centers as far as, as, as outcomes, and um, they, they see more complex patients, for example. But the reality is that um, patients with, with cancer or any complex disease, greater than 80% of them will get care within 20 miles of their home. So we need to provide a cross-section of data, which we do, which shows um, what, are, what are outcomes among smaller hospitals, among larger systems, urban areas, uh, suburban areas, uh, rural areas, all taken into account. Okay, so let's talk about for a second randomized clinical trials. They aren't as quick enough for the patient who's got cancer right now to answer these specific questions, nor is it efficient as the risk-adjusted data analysis, is it? Yeah, so some of the challenges with the, um, the evidence that the guidelines are based on today, randomized controlled trials, is is that they're really a limited data set going in. So, so the, the trials are largely designed to answer different questions than patients are concerned about when, when, they're, when they're looking at their treatment options. So randomized controlled trials are looking at whether a tumor shrinks or grows based upon a, a, a treatment. Meanwhile, the patient is asking, okay, the, the drug caused the tumor to shrink. What does that mean with respect to my, my survival? Can I continue to keep my job if I go through this treatment? So um, there's a many times a disconnect there. And other major disconnects with the data is if you look at the participants in the trials, they, they tend to be younger, healthier, 
less racially and ethnically diverse than the, than the patients that are di diagnosed with cancer. So if you look at the average cancer diagnosis age, it's 70. And if you look at that subset of patients, um, greater than 60% of those patients have multiple comorbidities. And those two aspects alone would, would preclude the, the lion's share of patients that are diagnosed from participating in the trials. Now, are trials evil? Are they set up wrong? No, they are there to um, look at the differences associated with different treatments and, and they're isolating factors that may confound their, their outcomes. I would do the same thing. So that what we're trying to crosswalk here is looking at the efficacy at, versus the effectiveness question that, that uh, um, drug companies have on one aspect and patients have on the other aspect. The other natural source I thought, other than going to these academics, there's would be EHR data, but you don't think EHR data is of any value because it's really designed for insurance companies, not for evaluating cancer risk and outcomes. Yeah, so the EHR data in many cases has limited value. It gives us a good understanding of how patients were treated, what treatments they received, it doesn't provide us information on the why they received the treatment they did. And in large part, you know, it, it's coding for dollars. So when, when you, over the years I've done this, um, incentives matter and, and what's reimbursed is largely what's coded for and what isn't reimbursed is, is there, there is an incentive to do it. So um, understanding that what that data set is designed for in large part billing you know, collection it's not there to answer clinical questions. And so that's where the importance of registries comes into play and working with um, the, these specialty groups that help define the variables captured in, in the registries so that understanding what's captured, when it's captured, what's measured, for instance, definitions around what renal failure is so that um, we're not solving for variation in definition Instead, we're able to solve for variation in outcomes. Okay, so how, Robert, do large employers or small employers contract with you? And then what are they gonna save per cancer patient once they engage you? Yep, so, so um, we contract direct with the employers and then we can provide our platform to their employees when they're diagnosed. And um, we, we can do that on a per employee per month basis or, or a, on, on an individual basis as, as employees present with cancer. In general, with, with our, our models, um, we, we, we expect to see about a $30,000 savings per diagnosis among patients that are self-selecting the best treatment for, for them. So the, in our case, the, the economics is a derivative as it is in everything in healthcare of the decision that the patient makes. But what we found and others have, have um, also mirrored this, these, this analysis is um, when informed of the risk and rewards of treatments, many times patients will opt towards a, a less invasive approach than if, if they didn't have the information. Okay, so a hundred, a thousand employees is going to yield a basically a three hundred thousand dollars savings, which obviously bent more than pays for itself with you guys, and now covers not only that employee's twenty thousand dollars spend by the employer, but another half an employee as well. So um, it's economical for sure. Yeah, 
and the intangibles are there as well. So um, quality of life functioning, ability to stay on the job or other factors that, that are important measures that individuals are trying to balance when they make these treatment decisions. And that, that's also a role that we can help them with. Okay, so before we sign off, time has just flown by here, Robert. What is the way that your wizard behind the curtain has helped uh, professional sports teams? Got to ask with the Astros and the uh, hopefully after this is online, the Astros have won the World Series. But what? how do you help professional teams or how did you help professional teams? Yeah, so um, we've done work um, with, uh, with one of the large leagues and I'm um, under um, confidentiality on this, but one of the um, largest leagues in the United States and, and help them optimize behind the scenes uh, positional data that was was captured, automated, so that we could look at um, how patients or, or how the uh, players interacted with each other. And for the first time, we developed models that we could value every player on the field for every play. And so the Im impact of uh, what historically wouldn't have been measured from a defender perspective, we, we were able to quantify versus just players in the field that were in scoring position. So it was a, um, a new approach. And I know there's a lot of discussion around Moneyball and I get that and it's, it's a great approach. Uh, we came at it a little bit differently and more from a um, outcomes perspective, thinking about it in terms of, I, I really adapted the, the approach that we'd taken in cardiac surgery and um, cancer, for example, and, and adapted those risk metrics so that we could take into account many variables that, that intertwined versus historically uh, focusing on one or two variables that are, that are active in a given um, play at a given, given time. Did it result in less injuries or better recovery? Um, we didn't end up putting it in play. There were some political um, challenges behind, behind the scenes that were going on at the same same time, but it was more along the lines of valuing each player so that you would um, understand who to put into play, what, what's, what size of contract that you would want to give each player. So in three to five years is my final question. What do you expect? Uh, how many employees will you be serving in three to five years if you hit your numbers? Um, we're, we're looking at both domestic and international markets. So um, in, in three to five years, if we, if we start seeing the uptake that we, we expect, we should see north of, of 20 million lives um, being assisted with, with our tools. And you've been at this since 2014, so you're not a spring chicken. Y'all know what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, it's been a long, it's been a long and bumpy road, especially going through COVID and the effect that COVID has had on cancer diagnosis is is significant. I mean, with some some of our customers are seeing greater than 90% reduction in um, testing and therefore diagnosis. So, one of the elements that we're going to see over the next few years playing out is patients that should have been diagnosed this year being diagnosed later. And by definition, they're going to be having later stage disease. And the later stage disease can be significantly more expensive to treat. So that's going to have an impact on our whole system of care. Cancer is the most expensive diagnosis in healthcare already. And, and that's with a normal distribution of stage presentation diagnosis. But, but now we're going to be ratcheting up the stage at diagnosis, and, and that's going to have a significant impact on cost for everyone. So 
I would say my last question, do you see precision medicine, these orphan drugs being used in precision medicine as essentially or eventually replacing either radiation or chemo or both? My background is economics, so I'm hesitant to okay. com comment on clinical. So, so Good I call. Probably, yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, if you could, uh, first of all, if people want to reach you, Robert, how do they find you guys? You can look at us up online, our company, potentiometrics.com. Um, our, our cancer platform is at mycancerjourney.com. And, and um, we'd be happy to respond to any employers that'd be interested or um, any patients that would, that would want to use the platform as well. Yeah, that would be my first stop. Uh, God forbid if I get cancer. Um, and then if you could fly a banner overhead in America to say one message, what would that be? I think the message is we really need to turn the system on its head with respect to how do we even begin with treating patients. I, I, I think it's important that patients present with their, their values, their, their, their goals when, when they meet with uh, physicians and the physicians solve based upon the patient preferences for what treatment is best for this individual versus here's the course of treatment that we usually follow and we're going to adjust that course down the road based upon you pushing back. Yeah. And there's there's a nuance there and it, and it's a really important one. If I could encourage anyone listening to this that if you your loved ones, your friends or, or have any serious diagnosis, sit down and create a roadmap of what's most important to you so that when you meet with your physician, you can begin with that. And, and empower the physician to help you in ways that he may not realize that you want help with. Well, you are, if not the first guest, one of the first guests out of 140 shows that I can actually grab lunch with. And I think we're going to make plans to do that when we hang up here, because uh, we live in the same town, San Antonio. Yeah, fantastic. Looking forward to it. And what, what, a, what a great place it is. Yes. All right. Well, Robert, thanks for being on the show. And uh, we'll keep up with your progress. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.